Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. David, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, you know, it's our tradition to have our guests start by introducing themselves to the audience. So tell us, how did you get involved in data science and machine learning? Yeah, sure. Man, I've been interested in AI since I was a kid, reading science fiction mm. books as uh, in elementary school about robots and artificial intelligence really grabbed my interest. And uh, I guess it was in eighth grade, there was a summer program and we got to build these Fisher Technic kit projects that's kind of like a motorized and computer controllable Lego kit, but it was made by this company, Fisher Technic. And I loved it. I thought it was the most amazing thing to be able to control a kind of a robot-like device with with computer programming. And then a few years later, I guess in high school then, um, I started hearing about neural networks, which was my first exposure to machine learning. And yeah, for a project, I, I bought a textbook and I implemented a neural network to do some classification on some medical data. And yeah, frankly, at the time, I didn't really understand very well how the neural network was working in the, at the detailed mathematical level. But uh, I had a taste of the, of the ML framework, even uh, as like early 90s. That's pretty amazing that you were exposed to neural nets in high school. Where did you go to high school? I went to Montgomery Blair High School in Silver Spring, Maryland. It was a math science, computer okay. science magnet program. Huh. Uh, I don't remember. I don't even remember how I first heard about neural networks, but somehow it came to my attention and uh, found a way to special order these books at the local Barnes and Noble. Yeah, and I coded it up in Pascal. Nice, nice. How did you end up at uh, at Bloomberg, and what's your focus there? Right. So. Yeah, two hops to Bloomberg. So after grad school, I moved to New York and I joined a startup company uh, that was um, kind of Tony Jabara, who's a machine learning professor, who's a machine learning professor from Columbia. And now he's at Netflix. Um, I joined his startup company. We're doing a lot of spatial temporal data, uh, machine learning based on spatial temporal data, and then eventually got into uh, mobile advertising. So doing things like building, uh, building. Uh, bidders for ad exchanges and uh, those kind of fun problems that a lot of ML gets applied to these days. Uh, we got acquired by YP, which is Yellow Pages. And um, I stayed there for about a year or so. And then um, then I looked for my next step and I ended up at Bloomberg, where at Bloomberg, I'm in the office of the CTO. And it's a small group, I think about 25 people total within that group there's a five-person data science group that I'm a member of. And kind of our task is to work on strategic projects or plan strategic projects on kind of a two- to four-year time horizon. Uh, things that are a little bit too long-term for any individual engineering group to really plan for. So we kind of make strategic initiatives and kind of point the data science part of the company in different, different directions. So that's, that's kind of the big picture. Another way, uh, another way we think about it is if some other company were to gain a large advantage over Bloomberg because of some new technology in data science that we did not pursue, that would be our fault. Mm. That we're responsible for making sure we're not 
missing out on important on important uh, new tech developments. Right. Can you give us uh, some examples of the kinds of uh, things that you're looking at or have looked at yeah. in the past that kind of fall into yeah. the, this two to four year time frame? Sure, I can. Uh, so one thing, maybe not not quite so such a long term uh, play, but when I joined uh, maybe three years ago, there was um, kind of machine learning was at this interesting time where neural networks were, you know, starting to do very well on many tasks, but um, just kind of specific tasks like certainly vision and some NLP tasks, but um, it was kind of to get into neural networks. It's a pretty big investment in terms of hardware. Uh, at Bloomberg, we don't have kind of the ability to use the Amazon cloud or something. We need to use internal machines. So the CTO office kind of led the movement to try out neural networks, which involves you know investing in the cluster of GPU machines and seeding projects with various engineering teams to see uh, if neural networks was going to benefit the types of problems that we work on. And yeah, indeed we have found, you know, within uh, a couple of years that it's very important to some areas of the work that we do. So I consider that strategic, not so much because of the time horizon, but become because of the investment required that was kind of too large for any individual um, engineering group to take that risk. I guess I'm curious about the, the evolution of the use of machine learning at a company like Bloomberg. Uh, and you said, how long have you been there now? I've been uh, coming up on three years. Coming up on three years. Um, so maybe you'll, you'll have a sense of this. Like, I, I yeah, I talk to people all the time about like how uh, how enterprises, large businesses, kind of evolve these types of technologies and uh it's it's interesting you know in that there are some businesses where you know there are parts of the business that have used machine learning for a really long time like it's been baked into you know just core ways that they de deliver their products but yet and still even at those businesses there's been like a shift over the past five years in the way they've thought about uh thought about machine learning. And I'm just curious, mm. like in your words, like does any of that resonate and, and how have you seen that evolve at, at Bloomberg? Yeah. So machine, I think Bloomberg was fairly early in bringing machine learning into uh, their product, which I could tell you a little bit about, but I, so I think machine learning at Bloomberg was well underway. I mean, you know, there's close to a hundred people doing machine learning uh, at Bloomberg before I even arrived. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I can't really speak to how that developed, um, but I can say that even now we're continually trying to find areas where machine learning can help via by automation uh, or just um, kind of maybe more broadly than machine learning, just a good data science statistical approach to assessing uh, new, even if it's a rules-based method to use kind of proper methodology in assessing performance and uh, these sorts of things. Um, in fact, to that end, to try to uh, see where we can leverage ML more or data science more at Bloomberg, uh, another strategic initiative that is almost a year old now coming from the CTO department is what we're calling MLEDU, so machine learning education. But uh, the purview is, is 
broader than ML. It's kind of just data science more broadly. And um, we're trying to kind of educate people at all different levels, basically uh, from the uh, from the kind of most basic understanding of the main concepts of machine learning things like the notion of splitting your your data into training and test and the notions of overfitting um, kind of these fundamental ideas of machine learning that we uh, we have a course called ML1, which is uh, two half days and it's a few hours lecture and a few hours lab where people go through that. And that kind of gives people just a sense of what is this ML about. Um, and then we have at the other extreme, we have a kind of fairly in-depth course um, called ML 101, which is kind of like a master's level uh, machine learning class. It's kind of fairly uh, mathematical, but with practical end, uh, which is learning all the connections between things like gradient boosting and random forest and L1 and L2 regularization, kind of a standard master's level machine learning class. So, and we're trying to fill in everything in between. So um, how to manipulate data, explore data, visualize it, uh, how to do basic statistics, things like A-B testing, hypothesis testing, confidence intervals, and then uh, machine learning, kind of okay. predictive, predictive theory. Awesome. I am shortly going to be jumping on a plane to head out to the Bay Area for the GTC conference. Yeah. Uh, and you will too. Uh, probably not before me since I'm getting on a plane in a few hours. Uh, but um, you're going to be presenting there on what is presumably one of these projects within the the CTO's office, you know, data science uh, team that you've been working on. Can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. Uh, so the... The title is Information Extraction for Natural Document Formats. So natural document format, to my knowledge, is not really a common terminology, but uh, we encountered a lot at Bloomberg. And what we mean by that is uh, a, a document that was designed for easy human consumption and comprehension, uh, things like a Word document, a PDF document. And in particular, what we have in mind for, for the projects I'll be speaking about is where some kind of there's some kind of underlying data that is represented or that are represented in this natural document format in a way that's just fine for a person to comprehend, but is not easy at all to extract that data back out into, say, a database or an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. And this is a problem that we have uh, a lot of at Bloomberg. At Bloomberg. So an example of this might be like a chart or a graph or something like that? Is that the absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Okay. So, um, a scatter plot, a pie chart, a bar chart, or a table—a table of numbers. Um, you know, a table of all things you'd think should be very easy to, uh, you know, extract the data out into an Excel spreadsheet or a database or something. But when a table is just represented uh, in a PDF document in the middle of a, say, a company filing, Bloomberg collects all these documents from other companies, things like. Uh, company filings and these sorts of things. And we, these documents that they deliver in a PDF format typically uh, has important data in it that we need to extract so that it's easy for our Bloomberg's customers uh, to use, to get to. And so uh, traditionally, you know, I think almost since the founding of the company 30 years ago, there's been a whole organization within the company called uh, Global Data where it's people's jobs to figure out the most efficient and most correct way to extract this information 
from the documents. And there's, uh, I can't say exactly how much, but you know, certainly at least hundreds of uh, people working on these problems. Um, not necessarily, and it's been going on for 30 years. So it's it started off, you know, mostly by hand, and uh, a big effort over the over the years has been to see how to automate this as much as possible or make it more efficient for the people doing it. That's kind of the business driver. Um, in this particular scenario, I kind of thought this was a solved problem. Like for 10 years now, I thought that, you know, financial filings, um, I forget where, uh, I, there's like, the, I thought there was like the development of some standardized XML formats that were used for, you know, S ones and all these financial filings. Yeah. Now it sounds like that it's, I know that, that maybe, you know, some of the, you know, the, the largest companies kind of submit their things via these, these XML formats, but there's still a ton of traditional documents flying around with this information. There sure are. And, you know, maybe it's a letter to shareholders that is, you know, not necessarily uh, regulated. There's no requirements on the format to use. And we mm. kind of want to get as much data as we can. And even if the U.S. were to go in a certain direction, there's still all the other countries that may or may not have these um, requirements. And so, yes, I, in some sense, uh, perhaps someday everyone will will kind of publish all their any data that show up in any inconvenient document will be paired with a, you know, some kind of standard XML format, but we're surely not there yet. Uh, interesting. So tell me about the approach you're taking with this. Sure. So there's kind of three different tasks that I'll be talking about. One of them is as far as extracting data from tables that show up in documents. And the first, the first task there is to just find the tables in the, in the PDF documents. So for that, we're using a fairly off-the-shelf uh, image detection uh, methods, uh, the same things you would use to find a cat or a kite or, or whatever it is in, a, in an image. Um, one advantage that we have is because we've been solving this problem by hand for so many years, uh, we have a tremendous amount of labeled training data. Mm-hmm. And so now we're able to leverage that uh, to build models. And um, one interesting aspect we have is we need – we basically – can't afford to automate unless the uh, performance will be at least as good as a human's. And so before we're willing to cut a human out of the loop completely. And, and so, in fact, we've done that for this relatively straightforward problem of, at least for some sus, um, kind of sub problems of finding charts and documents, we've been able to exceed uh, human precision and recall, um, which was great. And, and then the downstream tasks uh, of ex- actually extracting the numbers from the table, uh, use some other techniques for. And so that's the second thing that I am w- going to talk about in the presentation, which is a little bit uh, futuristic. It's not something that we kind of, it's, it's, it's purely research right now. It's not something we're planning to productize anytime soon because it's kind of a long path. But we were inspired by this image captioning work that started a few years ago where you could show a picture of a, a man crossing the street and the, it would produce using an image to sequence model, the sentence man cross the street or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea was like, boy, if we could feed in a page of a document and have it output directly in one step, kind of a well-structured XML or JSON or, or standardized formatting of all the content in that kind of picture of the page of the document, 
wouldn't that be great? Then you could, because uh, that's so much easier. That's so there's so much you can do with that downstream as far as automated processing. Hey, it's it's hard to begin if you just have kind of a raw PDF. The format, if I could show you the format of a the internal of a PDF or even a parsed PDF is is not very easy to extract the structure from. Hmm. Um, so for that problem, so how are we going to apply image caption to this sort of thing? So I uh, I partnered with a a uh, student from Harvard, Yun Tian Dang, who had this really cool work uh, a year or two ago with, with Sasha Rush and some others, was uh, to convert a picture of, a, of an equation, a mathematical equation, that was generated by LaTeX, which is a kind of markup for making equations and uh, scientific documents, and to go from the image and reproduce LaTeX code that you would need to generate that equation. Oh, interesting. You can see as kind of a simple version of going from the image of something to a structured representation of kind of the underlying information in the picture that you can then ex- do further information extraction on. So we wanted to adapt that idea to this problem of information extraction from tables. So given the image of a table, can we, that was, and we're restricting here to kind of somewhat of a toy problem where we, we assume the table is generated from LaTeX in the first place. Uh, from a LaTeX document. And uh, so the problem is, can we regenerate the LaTeX code that would reproduce that table uh, exactly, kind of pixel level exact? And um, so that's another thing I'll be talking about. We had uh, some fairly impressive results for that. The kind of the exact match rate isn't so high, maybe it's 40%, but the errors are, even when it makes uh, errors, they're pretty minor. Um, so this seems like an interesting interesting line of work that mm-hmm. we're saying. And the last thing was, uh, was extracting data from scatter plots. So in a document, there'll often be scatter plots or um, plots containing information. And, you know, we found ourselves once or twice with the ruler trying to figure out exactly what points are represented in this chart, um, you know, lining up the point with the axis. axis <laughs> right, axis, right. Right. Um, it seems like, boy, this should be um, automatable with all the computer vision technologies we have now. And... Um, you know, this was an interesting thing where we actually thought that this was uh, close enough to something we could make a, a product out of that we, we kind of went straight for what's the most direct way to solve this problem without, you know, it's very tempting to, to, to try to make kind of the end-to-end solution that are, you know, so striking these days with, with the neural networks. Like, for instance, the image of the, of the table to the LaTeX code that produces it, that would be, I consider that an end-to-end solution. But um, so we were tempted to make the input, the, the chart, and the output just be the list of points uh, in one fell swoop. But it seemed to be a little bit too hard for right now for us. So we okay. broke that down into a pipeline of steps, uh, each one of which was just using off-the-shelf techniques. We started with kind of image recognition to find the components of the, of the charts. Um, then we used some various heuristics to put them together. and. Uh, at the end, I could do a fairly good job of extracting the data from uh, scatter plots, and currently we're working on pie charts, and next, I guess, would be bar charts and line charts. And um, I mean, the goal is to solve the problem in this particular case rather than to come up with a very kind of one-shot end-to-end solution. Right, right. So the the first of the problems you described was just really localizing these these graphical 
the tables. The, the ta- tables in particular or, or tables and charts, tables okay. and charts, but yeah. we were focusing particularly on the tables initially. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you're just looking at tables and, and charts, like I'm curious, how much do you, how much of the, the PDF internals do you actually use or do you just like take a picture of the page essentially and, and do your image recognition on the, the page itself? Yeah, good question. So the punchline is that it can do just fine using just a picture. So if you treat each PDF page as a, as a picture, just render it and use that as input, that works just fine. Initially, we were concerned that it would be too hard. So we tried to use a part of the PDF to simplify the image. So for instance, we figured, uh, you know, it doesn't really need to know exactly what characters are there. Um, maybe it just needs to know the character type, like letter versus number, this sort of thing. Mm, okay. Uh, so maybe, maybe we can render a simpler version of the page that would be easier for the um, object detection system to, to learn from. But it turns out it works just fine with the rendering of the raw. I mean, sometimes one works a little better, sometimes the other works a little better, but um, it can go directly from the, the rendered image. So the, the result of this first step is just... Um... You know, is it is it like a bounding box and a, a label that says table or chart or? Uh... It is a it is a bounding box, and it sounds. When I first heard about it, I, I felt like this is sounds so easy. Why are they fussed <laughs> like... about it? Um, I'm sure everyone's thinking that, and it mostly is. But the issue is that um, you know, if you don't get the bounding box exactly right, if you leave off a column or leave off some of the header, um, or you don't properly separate the headers from the rest of the table, which is another um, part of finding the table in the first place, mm-hmm. then the entire extraction is messed up. So, um, and we don't, and kind of 95% accuracy isn't really good enough. So it's mm. always about the, again, if I had pictures, I could show you some. So at, at the, if you, if you go to the presentation, we could show you some really weird looking tables that heuristics just will fail on. This is actually really, really easy for me to visualize. And the reason why is because I often use uh, my cell phone camera to take pictures of receipts or pages or things like that. And the particular app that I use, you know, whether it's there are several that I use, Evernote is one, uh, Cam Scanner is another. Uh, but these apps will try to, you know, do exactly what you're describing, like draw yep. a bounding box around the document and then like use that to like, you know, rewarp it or, or straighten it uh, and crop it from the background. But it uh, is uncanny, the mistakes that these things will make and how, you know, I don't think the accuracy is anywhere near uh, 95% on, you know, what, you know, even if I've got the paper on a black notebook or something like that, like it's, it still seems to be a challenging problem. And, uh, you know, that's, it's perhaps complicated by the fact that it's running on a mobile device. I don't know. Um, but I can certainly imagine if you, if you now, uh, kind of, you know, you don't even have the benefit of the back, the contrasting background, you've got all different kinds of, you know, shapes and sizes of tables and, you know, adjacency of one table to the next. And, you know, I can, I can, you know, I said, is it, you know, just this issue of creating the back, the, the bounding box, but as you're describing this, I can imagine all of the complexities associated with getting this right. Right. Yeah. And, and you, you nailed one of the uh, challenges, which is when tables are adjacent, the problem of multiple columns, you know, there's often two column or three column documents. Yeah. I, I think you appreciate the, uh, it's harder than it sounds. 
harder than it sounds. Is this a system that you've you've tried to or gotten to the point of operationalizing yet, or is this? Yep. This is deployed. This is okay. in deployment. So this is in uh, this is kind of in the pipeline, uh, helping people. It either it's um, assisting people to annotate documents. So uh, someone will load the document. Uh, the document will be kind of pre-annotated with a guess by this system of uh, finding the tables, and then a human can approve or edit those annotations. Uh, and then for some classes of documents, it's just straight pass through uh, with no human uh, oversight needed, we've decided. Uh, that was, and that was going to be my exact question. Like, do you, you know, are you utilizing a model where you identify like a, or you kind of surface um, when, when the system isn't sure to the user and, and allow the, you know, that human in the loop to kind of make the final decision when there's some uncertainty or, you know, does it have to be kind of all or nothing? It sounds like, um, it sounds like mm-hmm. you are kind of doing that, you know, taking that middle ground where you're surfacing the, you know, where there's some ambiguity. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so I think what one thing that you seem to be speaking about is where the system will um, perhaps based on, you know, what it sees and it, it will give a measured response. Like, you know, I think this is the bounding box, but my confidence is low or, or, or they may give a numeric score to the confidence or something. Right. And then the ones that are low confidence will be highlighted to a user. What we feel safer with for now is finding classes of documents that overall have a very high performance, kind of above human level accuracy or precision recall um, measures. And as a group, those will be kind of passed through. Mm. Um, because the issue with confidence is that you have to trust the confidence measure. You have to trust the confidence score. And so that would have to be kind of assessed on its own. Okay. How are these classes of documents described? Like, is it, you know, all of the, you know, S1s for major fortune, you know, 500 companies all kind of look the same or all of AT&T's S1s we've got good performance on or that kind of thing? Right. It would be, yeah, else? it'd be like a class of documents, like filings of a certain of a certain type for example uh that have a, such a certain regularity to them um and the performance is very high that will kind of shunt those to automatic pastor which is to say it doesn't need a human oversight okay and it sounds like by implication then when when you know when the system's nailed a document class yeah the, it's confident well you know, aside from confidence, like it, it performs extremely well, like, you know, above human uh, levels of performance on every document in that class. There's not a lot of variability within the class. Yeah, that's the idea. Right. You'd like a more fine grained uh, certainty measure that one could uh, leverage. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's, a, it's like, I guess I would, I would expect that within, even within a document class, there are still ambiguous situations and I would expect you to want to somehow uh kind of surface that ambiguity. Um but you you don't want to do that. You want it to be kind of all or nothing. And I'm really trying to trying to yeah, get so into the thinking I, there. Well I you know it's interesting. I think part of it is the way our um annotation system works. That the annotation system works at the document level. So you know, ah, a document okay. maybe 10 to 50 pages and in some sense we either have a person annotate a document or we don't we at this point don't have a kind of 
page by page decision on whether it will be annotated. Okay. Uh, so I think that's that part of it. That's, that's a bit of a perhaps an idiosyncrasy of our setup. Right, right. So if you had, if you could just throw ambiguous pages on a stack, and you know someone goes through those page by page, then that might have changed the way you approach that piece. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, although I think I think being able to trust the confidence score is uh, is an interesting problem in and of itself. Um, you know, it's it's very you know most. Most machine learning methods these days output something that you are tempted to interpret as a probability, but whether those uh, for a probability of um, for classification, for instance, probability of being uh, a cat versus not a cat, mm-hmm. uh, sorts of things. Right. Um, but whether those probabilities are calibrated in the sense that it will actually be right that number of times if when you predict cat is um, that has to be confirmed. That's just because a a method gives a uh, probability score doesn't mean that's actually the probability, I guess. Right, right. There's an implicit weighting of kind of trusting that confidence versus like assuming that it's a hundred percent and kind of pushing those documents through. Like, how is I don't I don't have an intuitive feel for why that trust is any uh, any better than you know even in the case where you've got general high level of trust in a class mm-hmm. like you might you know in that case seems like there'd be information in a low confidence uh, an exceedingly low confidence level for a document right you so know, i think you're saying you had the we should do even better yeah so I, I guess have, i guess that's all i'm saying <laughs> so we, we have a class of documents which without any information about the individual pages or the individual document the overall performance will be say 98 percent precision and recall while human is 97 or 98. Okay, so match or exceed uh, human performance. And then you're pointing out, maybe we could do even better by going page by page and highlighting the ones that are somewhat less certain um, and maybe sending those to a human and then we can do even better overall. Yeah, that's, I yeah. agree with that. Yeah, right, right. right. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. I appreciate you putting it like that. And it's certainly not my job to, uh, there's often a way to do better, but then there are, you know, the, the trade-offs that, you know, come with trying to, with, with doing that. And if you've achieved a level of performance that, uh, you need for your use case, then, um, you know, great. Yeah, um, so for the pass through the, it's not even 97, 98, it's, it's like essentially a hundred. Um, oh, really? it, yeah, for yeah. The one, for like <laughs> the 90, for the 96, 97, uh, I think those still go to humans. Um, I could, uh, I'm not hundred percent sure I'd have to double check that. And so another kind of thought that I'm, I'm wondering if you are thinking about it and tracking, uh, is, uh, the whole kind of adversarial attack, um, mm. conversation and like yeah. you know, some scenario where, you know, a company kind of, you know, manipulates the presentation of their data to, um, you know, change the way your parser interprets their charts and tables and, you know, yeah. somehow affect trades of Bloomberg customers. Like, I'm assuming that's something that you folks are thinking about. I mean, that's really important. So there's a little bit of that we've already seen where there'll be a document that if you look at it to the eye, um, nothing unusual going on. But if you parse it with a PDF parser, which tries to extract um, 
kind of text and stuff for you. What, what we found is some documents will put incorrect information or confusing information in a kind of invisible font color. Mm. And so when you parse it, it's very difficult to figure out what's going on uh, if you use like a PDF parser. Huh. Uh, but we've been able to get around those because we just use the rendering of the of the page. And so if a, um, kind of a human can't see it, the, I mean, uh, it can, let me just say that the, the, uh, the network can figure out what are kind of relevant colors and irrelevant colors and that sort of thing. Right. But, but we're not protected against kind of, uh, not necessarily protected against, uh, adversarial images that, um, could mess up a, network but a human wouldn't see um i mean i don't know how that would work through after being printed out and stuff i assume it would but yeah of course we've seen i assume you're talking about these pretty cool examples where there'll be a, a picture that's clearly a cat and the the classifier will give it 99 percent confidence that it's a car or something like exactly that. exactly right um that's really interesting uh we have um we haven't noticed things like that happening, but that's definitely something we need to keep an eye out for. Yeah. I like the way you describe the tricks that folks do with like, uh, kind of background colored text makes me think of, uh, it just struck me that like, in some ways you can think of like fine print and some of these things as like adversarial adversarial attacks against the human brain. Right. It's like <laughs> right. yeah, things we do to like, you know, present information so as to mislead the the reader. Right. So the, the first part is identifying these tables and charts. The second part is uh, then parsing the tables. And you talked about, um, you know, some of the challenges associated uh, with that as a high level over there. Um, you know, where did the kind of the, the bulk of the work uh, on that particular piece take place? Or were there any like major, you know, what were the major challenges that you had to overcome on that, uh, the table interpretation part? Uh, the, the finding the tables part or the LaTeX the, the LaTeX the extraction, the, the reverse engineering the right. tables, I guess. Right, right. One issue is that the, um, the images are just bigger. There's just much more information in a table, uh, potentially, than in a, um, an equation, that, which has a lot of information, but a table is just can be a whole lot of numbers. It can be quite large. Um, and uh, there we get into um, kind of memory issues with these convolutional neural networks. Uh, when, we're, when you're training, for instance, uh, if you have you know, a large input image, you, you know, you're restricted to how big a batch you can use at one time, and uh, this will slow down training. And so the first challenge is that these things you know, are taking two weeks to train, uh, which is you know, it's hard to iterate on, on a problem when it takes so long to train. So oh, we did some work. At the, we happened to have uh, uh, to have received the the new NVIDIA GPUs at that time. So that had um, 16 bit kind of floating 16 bit floating point capabilities, which uh, are kind of theoretically going to be twice as fast, and you can kind of have twice as many weights stored in memory because you're only using half as many bits for them. So mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time trying to adapt to this 16 bit uh, technology, so we could have you know the speed up and the, and the kind of access to put more stuff in memory, but it turned out to be much harder than we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. 
there are a whole bunch of kind of technical issues when we represented our weights in our network with only 16 bits. Uh, and it turns out we weren't alone. It turns out this is kind of uh, this has kind of been uh, it's kind of a known issue at this point that you want to you don't really want to store everything in 16 bits. You can do some calculations in 16 bits, but your your weights eventually should be stored in uh, 32 bits. Um, so we spent a lot of time kind of working through that okay. that problem. Um, and what we're working on now is, I mean, so what's the the basic the basic issue with this? Uh, table to LaTeX is that it looks fine, but it, it doesn't really work that well if you're going for an exact match and we're going for an exact match, you know, 40%, that's 40% correct. That's, that's pretty low by any, mm -hmm. by most uh, standards. The equations were kind of more up like 80% exactly correct. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, and this is, this is ongoing work. Is your, your measure of correctness, is this uh, like pixel, like, you know, pixel overlay or is it uh, something else. So is it more um, information based, I guess? Right. Yeah. It's, so it's not information based during training. It's, uh, it's during training time. We're just trying to maximize kind of the likelihood of the correct LaTeX. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's training time. But when it actually comes to evaluation, um, we're going for exact pixel to pixel match. So it's binary. You either got it exactly correct or not. So what that means mm -hmm. is, um, the input's the image of the table. The output's a string of LaTeX tokens. We feed that string into a LaTeX compiler. It renders an image. And then we compare that image pixel by pixel to the original image. And if it's an exact match, it's correct. And otherwise, it's incorrect. And why do you care about that? Um, why do we care know, about the exact match? For, as, you know, uh, why is your bar... I guess there are multiple ways to ask the question, like why... Do you care about kind of a LaTeX representation? Why do you care about pixel to pixel match? You know, why isn't it just that you've extracted the, you know, the rows and columns of data, the headings, the text, the numbers, all that stuff? Okay. So there's a few things in there. Let's see. So LaTeX, I don't care about LaTeX per se. LaTeX is kind of a stand in for a, um, a structured representation from which it should be easy to do the things you said, extract the rows and columns and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So why LaTeX? We happen to have access to um, a huge collection of uh, real world LaTeX documents that have tables in them. And so that's kind of our label training set. We went to archive, we scraped out um, all these papers. We found almost a half million tables with the original LaTeX. Oh, nice. And so Yeah. So, I mean, we could have, generated artificial tables, but it's really better to work with kind of real live natural data. So that's, that's part, that's basically how we ended up with LaTeX. Um, then the question, why do we care about exact match? And, um, well, one reason is expedience, which is that it's easy to do. And it's actually quite difficult to figure out how you would, um, score something that's not an exact match. Uh, I mean, you could do it in the image space where you, then you have this kind of the image, it's not an exact match. And then you, if you want to rate it by how off it is, you'd have to kind of do some alignment and find, and it seems like a very complicated problem in itself. Um, and then, and then you're asking, what about just measuring how it does in a downstream task, such as just finding the data, like so extracting the data from the, um, the LaTeX and, you know, are the numbers correct? Are the headers correct? And that would be, that would be possible. Uh, that would, it's still very difficult to score. Um, we actually have the same problem with uh, 
when we're extracting data from scattered scattered plots. You know, there's 60 points in the chart. The system finds 57, and the points you know have amounts of error ranging from quarter percent to <laughs> somebody celebrating back there. Yeah, sorry about that. The uh, there's a kind of a awards thing going on just starting now <laughs> next door to me. Uh, so it sounds like in, in both the table and the the scatter plots, you're using the visual domain. Uh, and visual domain accuracy is really uh it's just a convenient intermediary for you to be able to test whether you've accomplished the goal, whether you're able to replicate uh, the system. And because, at least in the case of the tables, um, and I think you're doing the same thing with the, the scatter plots, because the table that you're generating uh, or predicting is generated via uh, via a structured representation. It doesn't really matter what it is, but you happen to have training data that's in the tech because you're generating it via a structured representation. You know that, you know, downstream, you'll be able to pull the data out the way you need to. That's, that's right. Um, also it's, uh, it's convenience to do in the image domain, but also it's, it's hard to know exactly what downstream tasks we're going to want to do on the structured representation. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's important information in that bold face versus italics, um, uh, which you might think isn't necessarily part of the core information um, of the table. Mm. Uh, So the harder tables to extract, a lot of that complexity comes from things like hierarchical column headers or row headers or uh, cells that span multiple rows or columns. And uh, this is actually difficult to represent in a um it's difficult to score the performance on those sorts of mistakes like what if it didn't properly represent the cell as spanning two column headers or these sorts of things um so i guess uh yes it comes down to uh simplicity simplicity but also it just not being exactly clear how what else we would do how else we would score in a way that would be you know good for any possible downstream task we'd want to do. Yeah, no, that makes a that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. Awesome. So you in your presentation, you kind of go through these three uh, sub projects. Uh, yeah. Uh, were there any uh, closing or parting thoughts that would uh, make a good wrap up for us here? Huh. Well, I guess one one thing that people often uh, wonder about is. What about all these people who are labeling documents and now are they going to be all automated away? And uh, we're really not worried about it, not because we don't care about people's jobs. We absolutely do. But because uh, the people doing the labeling are actually often fairly highly trained and we'd, we'd love to have them working on harder and, and deeper problems that uh, they'll have uh, time for once the, more, the problems that a computer can solve are solved. So, you know, questions about... We can find the data and then we can flag things that are unexpected. Then the human can go and tag the unexpected behavior with perhaps linking it to a possible reason why. These sorts of things are more still human level tasks that it's not clear are automatable in the in the near future. And kind of automating the menial tasks will hopefully leave humans free to do the tasks that we don't yet know how to automate. Mm. And maybe are more like specific to needing human intelligence, at least for now. And it sounds like in the example you gave, more valuable. Right. 
Awesome. Uh, well, David, you've been very generous with your, with your time. Thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on David or any of the topics covered in this episode, you'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 126. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.